Hey gang, again, welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Episode 100 is here. God, we hit triple digits. Never would have thought about this two and a half years ago when this whole thing started, um, and certainly appreciate all the great feedback and reviews and listens, whatever you want to call it, just everything um, for everyone that's listened in over the last couple of years. So truly just grateful and humbled. Uh, anyone can put a podcast out, you know, but the fact that I was able to put one out, stay consistent with it and, you know, really change some people's lives because I've got some great feedback that some of those interviews have really helped people. Um, that means the, the world to me. So um, this episode should be no different. I bring on Sarah Andreco. She is a canine behavior consultant and the founder and executive director of the American Pitbull Foundation. Now, as you see by the last name, pretty similar to mine. It is. It's because Sarah is my sister-in-law. And uh, I've been meaning to have her on for a little while. This was just an opportunistic time from a scheduling standpoint. Um, and it worked out great. And I think you guys are going to really appreciate some of her insight, not just around kind of business and entrepreneurship, but definitely around, you know, dogs and canines and and maybe some tips there that can help you out um, in your own life. So I'm really excited to get in this interview. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Sarah Andreco. Let's get it started. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. How are things going down in Charlotte? You keep my brother in line? Yeah, always. It's a little little chaotic with everything going on with the coronavirus, but for the most part, we're we're holding it down and keeping it together. Yeah. Hopefully you guys a, are well on that end. It's an interesting time for sure. Um, and we don't have to derail on that topic. I mean, that's getting, it seems like everything you turn on is talking about that, rightfully so, I think, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to, you know, for especially where you've come from and what you're trying to do. I think there's some great points that we can talk about. Maybe can get people away from not just the focus on today, but also, you know, as we come out of this, um, what are some opportunities for them to learn and expand? And I think especially what you're doing really around not just dogs, but that's a great realm just around animal behavior and those type of things. I think could be really cool for folks. Um Because I do want to get into kind of being a behavior consultant, and especially with the nonprofit that you started, I want to get into some of those things that could be helpful from folks, not only from a business organization standpoint, but obviously just day-to-day living. Um, But I want to start here if we can. I want to take a quick step back because you've kind of been around a lot of stuff from, if you were a veterinary nurse, if I recall, is that the right terminology to use? Yes, it is. It's ever-changing. So good luck keeping up with that. But yes, I've been a veterinary nurse on and off for over 20 years. Yeah. So what? I'm just more curious, uh, why did you decide that field? Why was that the important path for you when you kind of started off your career years ago? Well, I never went into it wanting to be a veterinary technician or nurse or assistant. It was just kind of a segue for me to be able to surround myself with animals in a medical way. I really enjoy putting my hands on patients and learning more about them. And um, so that was really appealing to me from a work perspective, but the goal was never to actually be a technician. I always thought since I was probably five years old and you know nothing more about anything else you can do with animals aside from being a veterinarian that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And that kind of developed into, I want to be a veterinary surgeon and, you know, maybe I'll have some experience with veterinary forensics, you know, kind of specializing. But um, as I, as I grew and especially as I started developing more in the nonprofit sector, I came to realize that that wasn't actually kind of what my passion was. So Um, I wanted to expand on that and have a different impact, so to speak. So I had to kind of adjust on the fly uh, what my actual goals were professionally. So even though I was in that, and I still serve as a relief nurse every once in a while and still help out where I can, but it was never actually my goal to specifically enter that field in particular or that, that line in that field rather. So it was kind of a segue into other things. That was definitely a segue into how I got started in rescue and the nonprofit world as well. So had I not been exposed to a lot of those things in that position, um, I would have a very different trajectory. Well, that's always what the fascinating thing is. You know, I, I basically, almost everyone on this podcast, you know, hundred episodes in here and most everyone has said, yeah, Brian, 10 years ago, I could not have pictured that I'd be doing this today. 
yes. uh, for the most part. So I, I think that's, you know, that's great. That's also an opportunity for us, you know, to figure out, you know, how do we learn and expand and not just keep going down that same path, but figuring out other things that make us passionate. Um, um, being okay really with that change too. It's very hard sometimes to accept that you actually should divert and um, that there's another road calling you and to have the, you know, it takes a little bit of courage to, to see what's, you know, what could be um, and to, to change paths, to change roles. Well, so what was that for you then? What, how fur, further along, I guess, were you into that veterinarian technician or that type of role before you started to say, wait a minute, not that I don't like this, but there's some other things that I'm passionate about that I want to do. Um, well, the passion was always there and, and really the change didn't come until those two things started to conflict with one another. So I was still working as an emergency technician over at NC State while I was finishing up my prerequisites to go through vet school. So I was right there at kind of that critical point where everything was going to change. But, you know, life happened, kids happened. And I had at the time three children. Now I have four wonderful little ones. But um, I was having to divvy up my time and my priorities. And taking the route through vet school was pulling me completely over away from my nonprofit passion. And that was incredibly difficult for me. So difficult that I thought, do I really want to give this up? Do I really want to see this fall? Because it's not strong enough to make it without me yet. And I feel like there's so much more impact that I can have on the world and continuing that. I was, I was just very, very attached to it. And I, I felt very strongly and still feel very strongly about the purpose behind my nonprofit, but I knew it wouldn't survive me going through vet school. Uh, and on the other side of that too, you know, I'm a mother and, and giving at the time, again, three children, individual attention and time and yeah, being there for them was, was incredibly difficult between working as an emergency technician, going to school and meeting all of the criteria necessary for the hours that you have to throw at something like that. It was just an incredibly difficult thing to balance and something had to give. And so I really had to have a sit down conversation with myself about, okay, what do I really want to do? I know that I've been on this path pretty much my entire life. And I've always thought that this is what I need to do, but there's a reason that I can't let go of this other thing that I'm so involved with and have been working so hard at for many years. And so I eventually made that shift and made that change. And ultimately it was much better overall for my family life as well as my professional life as well. So when you know you started the American Pitbull Foundation, and we'll get into that, but was that because I know you did some other nonprofit work? Are are you talking specifically about just donating time to nonprofits, or actually trying to get this off the ground in the, in the middle of maybe going to to medical school for for being a vet? It was already off the ground. It was already up and rolling. The problem was is that I didn't have enough strong leadership with the same vision that I had. This was something different. You know, this was something outside of the box. So I didn't have anyone else that I would be able to step away and allow them to kind of continue that process. So the organization would not have continued the way that I had erected it, you know, for its primary mission and purpose. It would have kind of fallen by the wayside. And I wasn't willing to risk that. I thought it was just too important. So, you know, had it been an older organization, where we had a senior staff on board already that was dependable. We had paid staff, you know, even on board. I might have been able to handle doing those two things simultaneously, but um, I was far into the organization uh, before making that decision. So it was up and running. We had, you know, we had public members of the public that relied on us for, um, uh, for medical needs for their dogs, for, you know, unchaining their animals. We had, you know, human education classes going, um, you know, we were, we were, financially su sustaining a portion of the population that really needed us and was going to um, be fairly hurt in the event that we were not there to supply that assistance anymore. So that really took a toll on me also. But yeah, we were pretty much up and going for a good, a good five years before uh, I made that decision to go to that full time versus going to vet school. I want to pull back the layer on something quickly, but just so, so folks know what it We'll give the quick definition of the American Pitbull Foundation, what that is, what, what the structure is for y'all. Sure. So it's a public organization, a public service organization, a 501c3 nonprofit that promotes responsible dog ownership through education, programming, and assistance. There are four pillars, four programs to the organization. So we uh, are involved with humane education, with outreach services, with advocacy for pit bull type dogs, and then of course our shelter to service program, Operation Sidekick, which provides rescued and trained service dogs for veterans suffering from PTSD. So those are our four primary primary programs under this organization. So with the overlap for, as you mentioned, about five years or so, how the heck did you manage? 
doing what would I consider your full-time job, then running the nonprofit and you had kids at home, like how, were there anything that you found that was beneficial to, whether it was from a time management or attention management to be able to structure your days or weeks uh, to fit everything in? You shouldn't try to fit everything in. I was literally on autopilot and, um, you know, it, it, the, the old saying burning the candle at both ends really holds true to that kind of lifestyle. And I don't recommend it. You know, when you're young and you have all this time and, you know, if, if money isn't an issue, of course you can multiple, you know, you can, you can handle or juggle multiple balls at the same time. But what I was doing wasn't really healthy. Um, you really need to kind of pick your focal points and your priorities in life and stick with those and run with those and just be really good at them. And kind of during that period of my life where I was going to school and I was, you know, trying to raise a family and I was trying to work and bring in an income and, you know, trying to do nonprofit and volunteer work, it was, it was chaos. I mean, it was organized chaos, you know, there was a structure to it, but um, I was constantly run down. You know, I didn't put enough into me, into myself. Like I didn't take care of myself well. I was just eating whatever I could, whenever I could. I wasn't working out. I wasn't taking care of my body. Um, and so a lot of things tend to suffer when you put so much on your plate that you can't handle it. And unfortunately, I'm just the kind of person that adds more and more. So, um, and I didn't recognize the danger of that at the time. And so I was, I was also volunteering with other organizations at the same time. Like I volunteered with team Rubicon and was leading their events that they were having locally. And, you know, I still volunteered every once in a while for the Carolina Raptor center. So I really piled it on. And honestly, for anyone that's looking to juggle that much, um, I would say drop a few of those balls, you know, figure out which things in your life are really priority for you and just really focus on those things and be good at those things. Because after a while you're going to degrade and you're not going to take care of yourself and it becomes very difficult to properly take care of everyone else around you at the same time. So for people that are in nonprofit, for people that are in the service industry, it's very important for you to be able to take care of people around you. That's what you're driven to do. So if you start failing yourself because you're overloaded, then you start failing the people that you're out to help. And that's kind of what happened to me during that time. I was only able to do it on autopilot, as I call it, for so long before it just really started taking its toll and I had to choose. Well, so going back to that choosing part, how, you know, because this is the struggle I think we all have is how do you go from saying, Hey, this is a structure or something I've had. Yes. This is a passion of mine or something I've seen grow. How did you make that final determination of that rip the bandaid off and saying, Hey, I'm going this route. Were there any practices that you put in play? Was there any mentors that you had that helped you think it differently? Or was it just a gut feeling? You said, I'm going this direction. There was definitely some gut feeling behind it, but when you're in the middle of it, you're not sure whether you should be following that intuition or not. And to be perfectly honest, um, it was your brother I had a conversation with that ended up tipping that scale for me because here I had this really great vision and this idea and all these things that I wanted to do in my nonprofit life. And I knew that going through vet school and doing what I was doing, I was going to have to put that on hold and to the side. And I wasn't going to get to be as much of a part of that as I really wanted to. And, um, you know, I was really good friends with, um, your brother at the time. And, and I kind of leaned on him for some advice. Uh, you know, I had a lot of trust in him and, you know, he knew me fairly well. And so I literally called him one day in December and, and had a conversation with him. It was probably a good two hours and told him where I was at. You know, I was like, I'm at this crossroad and I'm, I'm not really hundred percent sure what to do. And here's what I'm thinking, but what do you think? think. And um, ultimately, he made me feel a lot more comfortable with the fact that I was leaning towards something that I knew was the right decision. And I just needed kind of that extra little push. I needed to know that, yes, that was the right thing to do and why it was the right thing to do. Hearing someone else explain it to me that knows me well um, made that decision a lot easier. And the second I made that decision, this enormous weight was just kind of lifted off of my chest and everything just felt right. So, um, not so much mentorship necessarily, but having, having him there as a friend that I could lean on and say, here's what I'm going through. And, you know, this is what I think I should do, but I'm not really sure. And having that, um, having that listening ear that also has, you know, some, some good knowledge of, of kind of the nonprofit world out there and kind of you as a person and what your expectations are and what your, your desire for impact is to help kind of lead that conversation was, was very beneficial. So why did you choose dogs specifically and then even more niche pit bulls? Why was that the path for you? Um, I've always been drawn to every type of animal, but the most the, the dogs are really what I've been involved with the most since I was very little. I mean, I'm just, I'm naturally drawn to them. I, um, 
I always had an, uh, an eagerness to learn more about them and how they communicate. And I've always noticed that they communicate very differently than people um, assume that they do. You know, people are very anthropomorphic. They, they like to think of dogs as they think of people and expect them to make people decisions. And from a very early age, I recognized that there was a difference there. I hadn't actually learned what that difference was yet, but I was very enthralled by that. It was very captivating to me. So from an early age, I wanted to learn how to speak dog, so to speak. So, you know, when you're younger, that's kind of how you, you picture it. And as I got older and started to see a lot of the problems that arise from people not understanding communication with animals, especially dogs, because dogs are one of the most common animals in a household, so therefore could be the most problem when it comes to communication, you know, I started seeing the after effects of that, you know, the, the contribution to the overpopulation at the shelter, the incredible euthanasia rate where these dogs are getting euthanized left and right, oftentimes for behavioral reasons. And uh, as I grew in my practice, I came to learn that some of these things, most of these things were preventable just by basic, simple communication and guidance um, and understanding dogs as dogs and not as people or expecting them to make people decisions. So I was always very captivated by that. And I'm a very eager learner. So anything I can get my hands on to learn or to absorb, some of it was through schooling. Uh, some of it was swayed by that because I was a biology major and, you know, I was, I was taking my classes to go uh, to get into vet school. And so some of that involved uh, animal behavior courses and physiology and psychology and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, but so I was always, I've always been drawn to dogs. Um, you know, I've always really wanted to learn more about them and how they, um, how they are from a, a physiological and psychological standpoint. And then uh, pit bulls was super easy for me. I grew up around pit bulls, but I never grew up around the stigma that they face, you know, this negative stereotype that there are these monster dogs that snap and, you know, their brains swell bigger than their heads and all these other ridiculous myths that are out there. They were just, you know, another dog in the household, just like a poodle or a Rottweiler or, you know, a Yorkshire Terrier or whatever. So um, being in the veterinary field really exposed me to how big of a problem we're facing with um, pit bull type dogs as far as overpopulation, abuse, neglect, abandonment. I mean, these are, these are dogs that are filling our shelters and they're being euthanized at ridiculous rates. And, you know, they, they were, they were by far working in the veterinary field, the most abused animals that I had come across. And that really hit me in the chest because, um, they're by far one of my favorite breed classes of dogs, just given how eager to please they are and all the things that we've bred them for. They're so good with people. They're very tolerant. They're great family dogs. You know, I'm speaking in generalities, although or individuals, but um, to have such a horrible stigma with such a fantastic breed class of dogs was really uh, something that didn't settle well with. And I, I felt very motivated to do something about that, to change this public perception. Um, this was kind of simultaneous with in my practice as a veterinary nurse, when people would come in with these dogs and, you know, oh, I, I don't need to euthanize it. I'm just going to set it on fire. Or they would come in with a broken leg that was a purposeful break, or we'd have to call animal control because somebody had this dog that was starving and chained up outside and some neighbor stole it and brought it into the vet hospital. And so I was taking on all of these dogs and trying to fix other people's problems and trying to get them healthy and trying to adopt them out. And really just trying to plug holes in a sinking ship essentially. But, um, because I and that's really what drove me to choose um, really being an advocate for pit bull type dogs. They were truly the underdog. And so I felt um, very driven and very motivated to be a voice for them and change that perception. When did this all start for pit bulls? What's the history behind it? Um, interestingly enough, I believe it started somewhere in the nineties, the late nineties. Uh, before that we had issues with Rottweilers and Dobermans, but it's never been quite the craze as the pit bull craze. Um, the issue we started seeing was where cities and towns and, and, um, uh, well, basically cities and towns were starting to put in breed bans as band-aid fixes to people complaining about dog, ta dog attacks and dog bites. Um, that unfortunately exacerbated the problem because you were removing good dogs from the population and people who didn't care about the law didn't care. And so you left poorly poorly uh, taken care of dogs in the population and dogs that are not well taken care of, their needs aren't met, you know, they're left intact and um, that are owned by irresponsible people are the dogs that cause the problem. So in starting to slap these Band-Aid fixes on different dog attacks and dog bites, the media grabbing a hold of a, a couple of stories here and there and, and sensationalizing it 
really kind of started that trajectory in the wrong direction of uh, putting a really bad rap and a bad name on uh, this class of, of dogs, so to speak. So it kind of just snowballed after that. It was easy to make up some of these myths that that circulated for a while. And of course, just like any rumor, that once the rumor's out there, it takes a while to really dispel it. You know, it's like if somebody points a finger at you and says you're guilty, you're pretty much guilty from that point on. Even if you're found innocent, you know, there's still that tarnish. So now here we are trying to kind of rewrite this bad rumor of history that went out there and snowballed with the help of the media and then these breed bans that went into effect uh, across the U.S. and different different cities. Across the world, actually, there are some global, global bans as well. So... And now, as history has progressed and has shown us exactly what everyone, um, at least, I'm sorry, not everyone, what the experts were saying is that it was going to make the, the problem worse. Now we're seeing that. It has made the problem worse. It has increased bites and attacks across the U.S. to put these bans in effect. So now you're seeing them get repealed all across the United States, which is awesome. It's a step in the right direction, but it's unfortunate for all those people and all of those dogs and families that had to suffer in the meantime while they got everything figured out. Well, I mean, I, I obviously I've seen the benefit having been around the dogs and, and the trained dogs. I mean, it's phenomenal. And yeah, I think it's just hilarious to me. The I'm not going to go down a, a psychology path or anything like that, but it's just hilarious to me, just humans in general. It's like, you know, my son has ADHD and it's like people saying, oh, ADHD, they have some behavior problems. We're not going to have them in any public schools and like putting a ban on that. Like that's the, the equivalent sort of, if I'm making an analogy, it just sounds ludicrous when you say that. But yet for dogs, it seems like, or any animals, I guess, there's probably other stuff that we don't know about. It's just funny to me how we can do that and just make these laws up. Isn't well, that crazy? People, people are always afraid of what they don't know. And you think about politicians, you know, they have to make decisions for the, the population, whether they have any idea about the topic or not. So it, it, it'd be a lot easier for them if they would bring in actual experts in the field. But again, who are the experts? So you have to know where to go to begin with. So, you know, sometimes I feel bad for them having to, to make these, these decisions and put these laws into place. But honestly, education is always the key. Always, you know, educate yourself before making these decisions. Um, or having these preconceived notions, but it really just goes back to fear. Everyone fears what they don't know. And, you know, with the humane education classes that we teach, um, I like to relate it to the students sometimes of, you know, you're, you're walking down the street and this, uh, this um, Asian dude in a red hat walks up and punches you in the face and, you know, steals your purse and runs off, right? So now do you, are you afraid of every single person you see in a red hat? Are you afraid of every single Asian person you see walking down the street? Are you afraid of every male? You know, what do you you lend that to? And and it's really a type of discrimination. It's stereotyping. And so the same goes for dogs. Like if you see one dog that looks like this, that you saw in a news story that bit someone, first of all, you have no idea why the animal bit. You know, dogs don't just bite for no reason. There's always a reason behind it. We're just often poor at picking up on their communication. But now do you discriminate against every single brindle dog that you ever see because the dog you saw on the news was brindle? You know, you, you can't, you can't, group discriminate that way. Um, obviously that doesn't lead to anything healthy. So, you know, with the students, I just try to relate it as simple as possible. You know, this guy has a blue t-shirt and he punches you in the face. Now are you going to be afraid of or angry at, or, you know, become defensive every time you see someone in a blue shirt? It, it, it is, it's just funny to me yeah, how, how we, how we are as a society as humans, um, which again, brings up a lot of problems because you have to live with everyone, you know? So yeah. you have to, you have to, and, and there's, I think most people are logical, but yeah, there is a, a large subset though, that is just to your point, for whatever reason, there's a lot of fear on things of unknown instead of finding out the information. And that's what I try to do here from like a business entrepreneur, those sort of things. Like there's a lot of information that's unknown. Just go find it out. Mm -hmm. If you don't know it, go get more knowledge on the subject and then make an opinion on it. Um, well, and often the knowledge doesn't have to be deep. It's simple things that you can learn. And, li and like I said, too, when it comes to behavior, a lot of it is very preventable. You know, a lot of these problems that we face, these bites, these attacks, it's not because of the dog, you know, it's because of the way that they're raised. Yes, genetics plays a factor too, but all you have to do is educate yourself just a little bit. It's not intimidating. Maybe that's, maybe that's the problem. People think it's just too intimidating to learn all the things that they need to know. And you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know everything, but you should definitely educate yourself and be open to different forms of communication and learning so that you can, you know, you can kind of combat that fear and become more knowledgeable and, you know, contribute to uh, responsible dog ownership in a safe, in a safe manner, you know. 
so if I'm going to get a dog today, now I know you're, you're big on, right. Going to the shelter, find a dog and, yes. you know, and, right. Adapt. But, but let's, let's assume I'm, I may do that, but I also may get a puppy that's just been born. Mm-hmm. Talk me through some of the, you know, from a behavior standpoint versus just training, you know, if, or myself, or maybe it's someone else that's listening, that's going through that. Give me a couple ideas or things that maybe not considering or haven't considered in the past that we should be thoughtful of um, as we kind of, you know, take the dog out there and, and try to actually, um, I guess, bring them into our family, make them sure it's safe, make sure they under, you know, there's that communication as you're talking about. What are some things we can do? Sure. Lots of easy things. Number one, do your research first. All dogs are individual. They all have individual personalities and needs, but there are some breed generalities. So whether you're looking at a mutt or you're looking at a purebred dog, um, you want to look at what some of those breed generalities are. If you're not a super active family and you have lots of kids, you don't want to get a border collie puppy. You're setting yourself up for quite a disaster down the road. Um, If you are super active and you're outside all the time and you need an athletic dog, obviously you're not going to go adopt a couch potato from the shelter. So um, aside from breed generalities, think about your home environment and what kind of personality is going to match that. One of the biggest mistakes that I see people make is picking the cute dog. Oh, I really want that dog because it's so cute. Um, do you have any idea what the requirements are of that dog? That dog is a Cavalier King Charles that has extremely long hair, but when you go to adopt it, it has very short hair because it has a puppy cut. Do you understand that that dog needs regular routine grooming? You know, just just certain little things to pay attention to. So. Do a little bit of research ahead of time. Try to figure out what kind of dog is going to be appropriate for your family. And if you're looking to adopt a mutt, that's perfectly fine too, but you want to rely on environment and energy level and activity. And um, the other thing I would recommend is meeting the dog several times. Again, I'm not into spontaneous adoptions at all. I understand that shelter animals move quickly, but you can always bring the family in, meet the animals a couple of times. A lot of facilities will allow you to actually bring, if you have another dog at home, bring another dog in to meet, make sure personalities mend as well. Um, staycations and foster to adopt situations, I think are fantastic. It gives you an idea of what having a dog in house is like, what the responsibility is like, what the new routine and the schedule and the work looks like that go into that to make sure you're actually ready for that. Um, and without the, having the commitment. So with a staycation or a foster to adopt, you're basically committing to taking care of an animal for an extended amount of time. And if you want to adopt, you have the choice to adopt, but you don't necessarily have to. So it's a really good way to get a feel for whether you're truly ready for this, whether you picked the right kind of dog, or maybe you should try something different, that sort of thing. And then um, the other thing that I would recommend too is um, people are so ready when they get a dog, whether they have one dog, two dogs, whatever, just throw them into the mix and into the routine. And there really is what we call this honeymoon period. So when you bring a puppy or a dog home for the first time, you have about a two week stretch of getting to know you where you're kind of putting your best foot forward. It's just like meeting a new person. So the real personality doesn't really come out of them until after that two week period. And then things start to emerge and then you get to see the real personality and then life kind of sets in. So in the beginning, I don't recommend taking your new dog out into public, meeting new people, new, you know, having playdates with other dogs, like that's stress and stress induces issues and can cause problems. So slow introductions are so important. When you bring a new dog home, just let them get familiar with the family, start getting them familiar with a routine, you know, start on the simple stuff like potty training, but let them get adjusted to their environment so that you don't accidentally cause um, stress inadvertently. And then that causes issues later on down the road behaviorally because of how you started things off. You know, first impressions are big, how we know with people. So same, same thing with dogs. We just do first impressions a little bit differently with dogs. Um, and the last thing I would say is just reach out for help. Like do a little bit of education ahead of time about training and dog communication, but it really helps you to build that bond with an animal to start training with a professional right away, whether it's a behaviorist or whether it's a a trainer, if you're just doing simple training and obedience skills, but um, doing that right from the get-go, you know, tethering your dog, uh, using their breakfast as reward and removing reward throughout the day, and just starting that obedience after that honeymoon period will really help um, catalyze a good uh, a good relationship with the animal, but then also set you up for better success down the road, behaviorally speaking. Um, and I guess actually there is one other thing I would mention. If you have kids in the household, it's really important to teach the children to give the dog space, especially when the dog is brand new. Um, animals are animals and they're going to act like animals. And oftentimes, again, some of the problems we see in the sheltering systems, why these dogs are 
euthanized or surrendered is because people aren't reading their signs. You know, dogs, dogs are verbal with us. They'll growl if they're uncomfortable. And people oftentimes see that growl as bad. Oh my gosh, you growled at my kids. No, the dog is trying to tell you that it's uncomfortable and you need to listen to that communication and you need to adjust accordingly and teach your kids to give the animals space. We don't jump on the dog. We don't ride the dog. We don't pull their tail in their ear. Um, meanwhile, you're doing different exercises to make the more dog, the dog more tolerant of those things. But integrating kids and dogs very slowly and with respect is really important to setting them up for success. These were all great things I wish I knew about 15, 16 years ago when your husband, when we were in college, decided to go to a shelter and just pick up a random dog that day and bring it home. I'm sure he's told you this story. Oh, yes. And the whole time I'm just like, oh my God, you did what? (laughs) And then we had three college guys living in an apartment and you brought home. Now, I love Maya was a phenomenal dog. It ended up working out, but um, the two foot hole that she chewed in our bathroom door one day because- Someone just, I don't know who the heck told us, maybe it was a vet or something, told us to put it in a small space, um, like during the day when you're at class. Oh, my word. A a big, anyways. (laughs) Very good, uh, very good tips I'd recommend everyone follow because, yeah, those would have been helpful for us. Well, yeah, I I tell him this all the time. He's got this luck streak and you guys got lucky with her. He was telling me about one time when he took her out to the golf course and she was gone for like three hours. And I'm like, you're lucky she didn't get hit by a car or shot or, you know, eat something toxic or get like, you have no idea where she is. And he's like, yeah, she just finally came back. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, I, I grimace at that because unfortunately, so many of those situations don't end quite as well. But yeah, he's, he's told me about her a few times. Well, so it, you know, kind of a lot of things you just mentioned, is this why you've decided, because I, I know obviously you're starting to put a lot more content out and videos and really try to educate on the simple things that folks, is is that where you've kind of changed? I know you're still doing obviously the nonprofit stuff and we'll get into that a little bit more, but you know, I find that everyone consumes a lot different information and a lot of quick videos, things of that nature can be helpful for people. Is that why you've went down that avenue more recently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, education is key. And and starting the American Pitbull Foundation, that was what I wanted to start it with. I feel like the more knowledge people have, you know, the, the better setup they are for success in general in anything in life. So YouTube is such an awesome platform. If I can get this information out to the masses, you know, I can save, you know, I have, I have an ulterior motive. I can save a lot of these dogs from ending up in the shelters, right? I do care about the people too, but you know, it's such a miscommunication and such confusion and it's such unnecessary abandonment and tearing families apart because of simple communication. So I feel the more that I can get out from an educational perspective to help owners understand what's going on and share my experiences with them, um, the more they can relate to that, the more they can understand, and the less likely it is that they're going to have a problem with their own dogs down the road. And it's more likely that they'll have good relationships with their pets and raise them responsibly. And then generations after them will then raise their animals responsibly. So it is, it's about consuming information. And I just want to put as much as I can out there uh, to the public so that they can consume that and and hopefully have better outcomes than we've seen in the past. You know, shelter numbers are starting to decline, which is good, but you can never consume too much knowledge. Um, the other side of that too is I'm always consuming new information. You know, I look to the experts above me that have been doing this longer or new research that's out there. And every time I get new information and new tidbits, I want to share that with people as well so they can also have that knowledge. So yeah, it's, it is all about the education for sure. So what's going on with the American Pitbull Foundation now? How, how's the, uh, how's this whole coronavirus COVID-19, I think, is that, or is that what it's called? Um, the how, disease how is, is COVID-19. Yes. The yeah. virus that causes it is SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. How, how is, how is that affecting you guys as a nonprofit? I got, I mean, obviously businesses all over the map are getting impacted drastically. How does that from a nonprofit standpoint, especially with donations and those type of things? So it hasn't hit us yet, but it's going to, and it's going to hurt bad. I mean, that's kind of realistically where we're at right now. Um, And the reason it's not going to hurt that bad right now is because, you know, there are still open grant cycles from budgets from this year. So foundations still have the money in house at the moment. And, but the majority of our funding comes from public donors. So given the fact that people are out of jobs, especially indefinitely, we have no idea when this is, this quarantine is going to be over. Um, They're holding on to money and rightfully so because they have to take care of their families. So people that would otherwise be supporting us and supporting our programs because we can't run our programs without public funding um, are holding on to that money as they should be for their own family. So 
we haven't been hit by it yet, but as we move even week to week to week, we're going to see a decline in donations. And unfortunately, because businesses are going to have to adjust, the um, we're, we're primarily um, supported from a business aspect from small businesses, and they're the ones taking the more massive hit uh, as opposed to some of the corporations. Um, so we're going to struggle with the businesses, you know, that typically do help fund some of our programs that they're just not going to be able to do that. And we're looking at, um, not just the end of this year, but the end of next year because of them trying to make up for that lost time and that lost money. So this is going to affect us for the next few years. Um, right now we are in the middle of deciding whether we can actually run our annual event, which is our rescue me 5k, which brings in thousands of dollars for us to be able to train our service dogs for veterans. We're facing the decision basically of saying we're going to have to do that virtually. And the whole appeal is that this is a 5K that people can come out and get behind and bring their dogs and run with their dogs and have all this fun with all of our vendors. But again, our vendors are small businesses. Um, And so we're looking at having to potentially cancel something that primarily funds our biggest program uh, of the organization. And that's, that's going to hurt us. It really is. Um, We're going to get through it. We'll, we'll, you know, we will adapt and, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, batten down the hatches and hold our breath and make our way through it. But um, to say that it isn't going to have an impact would be um, very unrealistic. The other side to it too is even though we do help veterans and we support the veteran community, we are seen as an animal welfare organization. So when something like um, the coronavirus happens, uh, animal welfare organizations take a back seat when it comes to donations. You know, obviously there are people out there that are giving to um, other organizations that are more focused on disease control and research and vaccinations and, you know, uh, hospital organizations and things like that, medical organizations, disaster response teams. So animal welfare takes a, a, a back seat when it comes to where people are putting their money. Um, some pros and cons, uh, you have celebrities out there, and this is why I ask people to hang on to us animal welfare people, because there's a lot of celebrities that are getting involved to help with virus initiatives to kind of help combat this, this spread of this disease that we're seeing. And so they're throwing millions of dollars at it, which is incredibly helpful. So if, if the people that typically support us with a $50 donation, a $1,000 donation, whatever the case may be is, I would, I would encourage those people to continue doing so because you have a lot of people with much bigger wallets out there that are helping to fund initiatives to combat uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. But yeah, all in all, that's a long way of saying um, th- this is, this is going to hurt. <laughs> this is going to hurt us, uh, but we'll get through it. And can you educate everyone? Because I didn't know this, but I think you did an article recently. Uh, maybe it was a video. I can't remember now. But around dogs and the impact with uh, COVID nineteen, or non-impact, I guess. Yeah. So as of right now, um, the latest research we have, which I was just reading an article uh, earlier today, um, is that dogs can carry the virus just like any other what we call fomite or a surface that can can harbor the virus. So your clothing, you know, your skin, this is why we have to wash our hands and be hygienic, your mouth. Um, So we can transmit the virus because it can live on surfaces. So it can live on the surface of animals and it can live in like the saliva or the snot or that kind of thing of an animal, uh, the mucus as well. Um, But they're not getting infected with the disease. I'm sorry, they're not getting infected with the virus to the point where it causes the disease. So we're not transmitting it the same way we transmit it person to person. Um, The only way that you can actually get it from an animal is just like you would any other surface for the most part. Um, They actually just had their second dog in Hong Kong uh, this morning um, test a week positive again, but those are samples from, again, their nose and their mouth, not from blood tests. This is not something that's infecting the animals so far. So again, you know, just just taking basic hygiene precautions um, will, will have the same effect as far as stopping the transmission from any surface as it would your dog. Now, if people become infected or um, are showing any signs of sickness that could potentially be uh, COVID-19, they are recommending that you quarantine yourself, not just from people, but from your pets as well, because you can transmit that with contact to your animals and then they can therefore spread it that way. But they're not getting infected. They're not contracting the disease yet. Yet is the key word. So there are some other animals that actually they think might um, be affected by this um, more likely sooner than our canine compadres. They're looking at uh, farming animals, pigs, cows, even cats, non-human primates um, as more likely targets for uh, uh, being affected by this potentially down the road um, more quickly than we'll see uh, canines being affected by it. Interesting times for sure that we, we are living <laughs> in. 
Um, yes. Well, so how do you, I mean, again, we can, we can live, I'm going to say this a little different way. <laughs> we certainly want to they're respectful. Like this is going on right now. This is impacting everyone, but hopefully, right. Whether it's a month, six months, a year, we will get past this. It's like we've done other diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guys stay on the cutting edge, at least from a, um, from a nonprofit standpoint and, and get creative or how is this getting you thinking differently about future events, about future initiatives? Um, not that something major like this might happen, but there might be other things that go on that impact the, uh, the foundation. Sure. Um, A lot of it is consuming knowledge. Um, It is relying on other industry leaders, so other nonprofit executives. Um, I'm a a member of a couple of different forums where we kind of all put our heads together. And a lot of it's trial and error. We've never been in this type of situation before. Um, So this is brand new. You know, it's it's, it's an an indefinite. There's so many indefinites here. You know, how are we going to recover? When are we going to recover? What are we going to do in the meantime? So um, it's kind of relying on each other as a nonprofit community to share our ideas, our experiences, what we put out there that works, what doesn't work, how the community is responding to us, what kind of support we're receiving. So not holding on to any of that information, sharing that information with other organizations and other nonprofit leaders to where we can work together to help each other get through these difficult times. That's really kind of you know, what I'm doing and what I'm, I'm, I'm going into this, uh, plan wise with. So again, this is, this is, you know, we have to think on our feet here. This is something that we've never experienced. And if you're a good nonprofit leader, you know, you're going to figure this out. You're going to rely on other nonprofit leaders and you're going to think a little bit of outside of the box, see what for-profit businesses are doing and, um, you know, open yourselves up to the community and see what the community's response is. Um, again, kind of like with what we're doing with the 5K, you know, chances are in the next few days, I'm going to open this up to our community that supports us and may not understand why we'd have to consider potentially rescheduling that if it's not until October. Um, so just making your community a part of what's going on as well and just consuming as much knowledge and information as possible to compile all that together and make decisions about what to do and what not to do and then just see what works and what doesn't and go from there. Um, but yeah, relying on my, uh, uh, my fellow community members that are kind of in the same boat is, is, um, proving to be fairly helpful. I think for everyone involved, you know, I, th- I think this is something I've been thinking about the last few days is how interesting, you know, it's, this is such an interesting time, not only obviously everything going on, but how it impacts business and what I've seen locally here in the Raleigh area, and you've probably seen this down in Charlotte, but it's the businesses, whether nonprofit or for-profit when they you know, entrust their community, they're reaching out, having conversations continually in the past, not just now, how those people are getting supported, those businesses. Like I just went, yesterday I went and uh, did a takeout from a local restaurant, an Italian restaurant that I love. Um, I got some ice cream from a local ice cream shop. That's, they, I love their business model. They're phenomenal people. And uh, so I was like, all right, let me get a couple quarts of ice cream to help them through this time. Since again, mm-hmm. everything's shut down, you can't really go in there. Uh, so it's really interesting to me though, and, and you kind of mentioned when you mentioned the word community, maybe think about this is how a lot of folks like maybe like yourself is you have that community you can reach out to and people want to help versus folks that have just been dollar, 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 I want to grow the business and have not focused on the community. They're going to hurt more because they haven't realized the benefit of having like this kind of membership, this community aspect to their business. And they put profit first. I'm curious if just any thoughts on that. Just I, I just was thinking about that recently. Um, you know how that's going to impact good or bad for a lot of these businesses. Yeah. So you hit on something here. That relationship really matters. And the difference is, is you have all these people out there that might not have built those relationships prior and are trying now. Those are not the ones that I think are going to succeed. I think the ones that are going to succeed are the ones that have been building those relationships for months, for years. That typically take care of their people, their customers, their clients. Um, those are the ones I think that people are going to stand by and really support. Um, and it's not that the other businesses aren't worthy of that. You know, some of them just might not have that side to them. You know, they're very introverted business owners or they're not really sure what to do. They're just trying to survive and feed their families too. Um, but it, it, 
it does bring up a good point that, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but how important your people are to you and to your business and that you are showing that gratitude on a regular basis and you're staying in touch with the people that support you, whether you're a nonprofit organization, you know, why are people donating? What, what pulls at their heartstrings? We have four different programs. They're all very different. Like, why are you a part of this organization? What calls to you and how do we keep you in touch with the things that are important to you most? It's the same with for-profit businesses as well. Your for-profits have to have that, that client-centric focus and that relationship building throughout the lifetime of the business, not just when it matters most or when they're, they're starting to hurt or struggle. Um, and the flip side to it, the, the other thing that I haven't seen very many people um, talking about much is that you know, if you think about all the businesses that you love and that you support on a regular basis, whether it's your favorite brewery down the street, your favorite ice cream place you were talking about, your gym, you know, you have all these businesses that you touch with on a regular basis. And in an uncertain time, it's very difficult for people to decide who they can support and who they can't, especially when they don't have a paycheck coming in. So you have all these people that want to support them and want to be behind them, want to buy the restaurant gift certificates to see them through this. But at the same time, they're not taking a paycheck and they have no idea when they're going to take their next paycheck. And so they're struggling too. And so I think it's really important for business owners to understand that even if your clients that you think are the most important that have been there for you, if they're not, as you see, financially supporting you, it doesn't mean they don't want to. Sometimes it means that they can't because they're struggling and going through this just as much as you are. So I just, I think it's important for business owners to see that too. I, I love the hustle out there. I love that they're doing everything they can and adapting to this environment and trying to really hold on to their clients and their customers. But they have to understand that just because somebody, you know, cancels a membership or doesn't buy a gift card or doesn't do takeout, it has nothing to do with not wanting to support them. Some people just simply can't. Yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair point. Yeah. And I, I think for both sides, you can look at it. Um, and, and again, you hope everyone gets through this. I mean, obviously it's going to cripple a lot of folks, unfortunately, um, you know, as sometimes these big life events do, but yeah, you hope everyone gets through it obviously. And is able to come out on the other side, uh, in a better spot, but, um, I love the idea that, that you'll find your true calling. You know, it's kind of that entrepreneurial spirit that if you, you fail, you fail again, you fail again, and then something bigger and beautiful and, you know, comes out of it, erupts out of it. So, um, I, I like to keep a positive mind frame that for, for the businesses out there that do shut down or the people that don't make it with what they're currently doing, there's always something else out there. You'll find your next thing and you'll, you'll, you know, you'll continue on just like everyone else will, even if it's yeah. not with what you're currently doing right now. So what, well, I, I, I kind of, you already have a sense of where this is going to go, but obviously we don't know what's going to go on the next handful of months or more, but what has been the thought on, on your guys' mind from not maybe just the, the Pitbull Foundation, maybe it's Operation Sidekick or some other things you're doing, but what's the next six or 12 months? What do you have in your plate that you're excited about? Um, honestly, just continuing the program the best that we can. We have a couple of dogs in house right now that we're training for veterans, and we're going to do the best that we can to continue those training programs. So, however, we can rearrange the schedule. Um, we're all volunteers, so making sure that we're able to balance life and work and still have an income, but also still see these programs going, even if everything is minimized we still just want to keep going. We want to do what we can until we get to the other side of this and things have normalized again. So even if we're only placing one dog in the next, you know, six months, so be it. We've, we've helped one veteran and we've saved that one dog and we've continued the program. So my thing is, is just taking a step back and not having the same huge expectations that we all put on ourselves for what the next year is going to look like and how many people we're going to help this year. Like, let's just continue, continue doing what we can with what we have and go from there. It's, it's literally going to be a week by week process to figure out what we're capable of and, and what we have to set aside for a while. Well, so I listen to a ton of podcasts and I'm always to, to your point, right? Educating myself, trying to get more knowledge, insight, you know, where can I improve in certain areas? So obviously there's some great insight you've shared already, but what would be a great takeaway? It could be a quote you live by that's been impactful. Maybe it is a, a mentor um, gave you some advice back in the day, whatever it is, something you've learned that you can share with folks that are listening in, whether it is starting their own venture, maybe it's a side hustle. Maybe it's, again, just moving the needle uh, for their own life. Anything you'd share that could be impactful for them right out of the gate, they can start with tomorrow? 
Um, honestly, I just, just don't get lost in everything that's going on right now. Seize this as an opportunity, you know, an opportunity, like you said, to listen to podcasts, to learn something new, to, to spend more time with your kids. Yes, it's stressful. Yes, it's exhausting. Yes, it's something we all have to adapt to and it's not the norm, but that's okay. Um, you know, so I, I would just encourage people to, you know, take the time to recognize what's going on and let it be, let it be okay with it. There's nothing you can do to change it. So take advantage of it. Take time to yourself, take care of yourself and just keep moving forward. But um, if you do have more time at home, you know, because you're not able to work from home. There's a lot of people in the service industry, for example, that are at home. Um, you know, if you're, if you're interested in another aspect of life, a different profession, or you want some schooling, like now's the time to, to absorb that information, absorb that knowledge, learn something different. So, um, I encourage people to look at how they can take advantage of this situation rather than how am I stuck in this situation? Like, what can I do to, to, um, see some positive in this and, and take something away from it that I otherwise wouldn't have if I were at work or running, you know, my same old normal schedule. Like this is a halt stop for everyone. Now you, you have this opportunity to stop everything you're doing. What do you want to do with it? You know, seize it as an opportunity. Great point, Sarah. I'm glad to uh, get you on episode hundred here and, uh, and have you join in and, and share some of your stuff. And I love what you're doing. Obviously, like I said, I, I know the dogs, I'm, I have a, a great opportunity to be around a lot and, uh, and they're, phenomenally trained. I love what you're doing mm, with the veteran side of it. So uh, keep up the great work and look forward to seeing uh, future success. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that interview with Sarah and certainly appreciate her coming on and sharing her journey with everyone and some great insights there in a variety of areas. Um, one, I wanted to peel back the layer on just a little bit to kind of wrap up this episode is, and she mentions a little bit about, you know, how my brother helped her and kind of give her some guidance to kind of go a little bit more full throttle into the American Pitbull Foundation. And I think that's really important to um, not overlook. You know, I've had some great mentors in my life and I have a couple really good friends and, um, you know, I guess I'd call them friends. I mean, you know, I, maybe I'd call them a mentor, but they're probably more friends than mentors, but just people that I could lean on as a support system, at worst that they listen to me, but and in an additional kind of note that they'll push me a little bit. They'll be the ones that plays devil advocate. They'll be the ones that, um, you know, allows me not to get away with stuff where other people might just give me some niceties and kind of let me on my way. And I think that's so necessary for any of us to be able to grow and expand and make the right decision. I mean, ultimately we have to make the decision. And maybe it was deep inside us and we knew the right answer anyways, but we needed someone to give us that guiding light. And I think that's so you know valuable to have those type of friends or mentors or whatever you want to call them in your life. So my encouragement to everyone is if you don't have some of those people, A, you maybe have the wrong, wrong circle that you're around um, or not around the right circle a lot or enough and you need to get in some of those areas. But if you have that, you know, the second part is who can you count on? Who is your go-to person or go-to people? And if you don't have those, try to seek those out. You know, some of the, sometimes that comes in forms of people you've never met before. And you reach out to some people that you admire and you ask if they have time to be a mentor. Um, you would like to learn from them, get some insight from them. So there's a few different ways that, you know, We've had people share on this podcast that they've got mentors, but the reality is just is you kind of got to take an audit of where you're at today. Do you have those people that, you know, you know, support you and you support them? And there's that really trust factor where you guys can have an open and honest dialogue or are those people not in your life. And hopefully they are. But if they're not in your life, it really may be something eye opening that you need to search for those people. And I got some great circles of people, some really solid friends that I've had for years. But there's also people in those groups that I'm not going to go to for advice, especially when it comes to business or livelihood or something. I may get some feedback or talk about it, but I'm going to put more stock in people that have gone through that or that I trust in those arenas. Um, and I think that's important for everyone to have. So that's just really my big takeaway from this episode is being able to have people that you can trust and respect and have a support system with and ultimately can call your bullshit for lack of better phrase um, to help you out you know kind of go to the next phase that you need to go to so 
anyways, as always, um, I appreciate you guys listening. I'm truly grateful, you know, 100 episodes in. Um, this has been unbelievable for the last two and a half years doing this. So uh, I'm, I'm so appreciative of just the opportunity to put this content out, having even if it's one person listening in and it helps them on their journey. So I thank you for that. Um, if you guys want to connect with me online, brianondraco.com or at brianondraco on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.